you don't really know what obedience is until you've had to be obedient in the face of intense suffering, mm, where yeah. it's gonna cost you something. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Elrus Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Benjamin Quinn will talk with Jonathan Darville about making sense of suffering. Jonathan's story is a beautiful testimony of God's grace in the midst of really tremendous hardship. You'll be so encouraged as you listen to that conversation. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment called On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news or sports, pop culture or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about pop culture. Here to join us is resident pop culture expert Aaron Earls. Aaron is senior writer and editor of LifewayResearch.com, and he's a freelance writer living outside of Nashville, Tennessee, with his wife and four kids. He is a graduate of Southeastern Seminary, holding an MDiv in apologetics from here at Southeastern. Aaron, two big pieces of pop culture that we've seen in recent months, two among many, are the movie Thor Love and Thunder and also the Netflix show Stranger Things, which was in season four. Now, you've written about both of those things for our Christ and Culture blog, but just paint a picture for us. How do these two shows deal with topics that are dear to people of faith? I think first we have to say, generally speaking, they're stories. And and so stories deeply connect to our faith. I mean, we're thinking of, you know, scripture, half of it is in narrative form itself. And then stories can often communicate in, in ways that get underneath who we are. Jesus could have given us a sermon that said, God loves us. And, and that'd been great. And he does that in some areas, but also he tells a story about a prodigal son and a father that chases them down. And, and, and C.S. Lewis, when he's writing the Chronicles of Narnia, he talks about how that series sneaks past what he calls the watchful dragons of people being kind of unaware. And so I think we think about stories that can communicate deep truths, even if the author is not even aware that they're doing so. You know, we think about if we're creating God's image, we can't help but reflect who he is in the art that we create. And so you see glimpses of that grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and almost every good story. And so we think about Thor, Love, and Thunder and certain things specifically. I don't know the fake perspective of the creators of those shows, uh, but they speak to deep issues with their faith. They can't help but do that. They may not always give biblical answers to the questions they raise, but they can't help but raise those questions. And so you think about Thor, the entire theme of Thor is centered around the problem of evil. And similarly, Stranger Things, it deals with death. And so obviously both those things are key issues to which the Christian faith speaks specifically. Let's talk about those in particular. You mentioned Thor Love and Thunder, that it talks about the question of why bad things happen. How does the movie address that question, and and how does that compare to what we see in Scripture? Let me just say, I did not expect to go to a Marvel movie and start thinking about Dr. Welty's class on the problem of good and evil at Southeastern. That was not on my bingo card of a Marvel movie, but that really was the first thing that popped in my mind as I'm watching this movie. And so in the movie, you see Christian Bale's gore, 
and he's stumbling across this, you know, barren desert wasteland with his daughter. He's praying to his God to save him, to help him out of this wretched situation he's in. And his daughter dies and he's struggling. He sees this oasis in front of him. And as he, he stumbles into this oasis and starts drinking water and, and eating this fruit that's there, he comes to find out his God that he's been praying to and worshiping is there in this oasis there with him. And as he talks to his God and tells him you know, that he's been struggling and, and his people are, are, are suffering, his God just dismisses him and, and has no concern for him whatsoever. That is until Gore picks up a cursed sword, which, you know, it's a comic book movie, so you're going to have cursed swords and those kind of things in there. But as he picks up that sword, he kills his God and then declares all gods must die. And so for Gore, he's blaming gods for the evil they sees in this world, which, of course, sets him off on this quest to kill all those gods. And if you're Thor and you're a god, that obviously concerns him. And so as, as he's trying to deal with this problem of evil in the, in the movie, Scripture, I think we see two different ways the Bible speaks to that. One of those is the God is God thing. We see that in, in Job. Much of God's response is, I'm God and you're not, Job. And Thor seems to want to critique this approach. Obviously, the gods are not responding the right way. But reality, the gods are just elevated humans. They have abilities we can't fathom. They have all these you know, superpowers and all those things, but they still have the same moral failures that we have. But the other way that Thor kind of hints at the solution is the other way that Bible talks about problem of evil of God became man. If you've kind of followed the Marvel franchise, you've seen Thor go from this arrogant warrior consumed only with himself, trying to prove that he's worthy enough to handle his, you know, his magic hammer. Again, we're talking about comic book movies. He moves from that into this leader, this humble leader, ready to lay down his life for his people. So this gets us to the Christian response of that. We, we see God becoming man in Jesus, his life and death on the cross. And that may not solve all of the philosophical questions of the problem of evil, but it addresses the existential one, which is really the, the one that most of us deal with when we think of the problem of evil. It's the personal issue. Where is God when I'm suffering? I hurt. God, where are you at? This hurts. Why are you not here? And so where's God when we're suffering? So Jesus demonstrates that God is there with us and suffering on our behalf. And so, you know, face to face with the problem of evil, Gore the God Butcher says, all gods must die. Face to face with the problem of evil, the Christian can respond. Yes, he already did. So from cursed swords to magic hammers to the problem of evil. That's a remarkable, <laughs> a remarkable. It, it covers the spectrum. Covers the spectrum, yeah. Uh, last thing, let, let's talk about Stranger Things. Again, one of the, the biggest events of the summer, the new season of Stranger Things. You mentioned that it really deals with the topic of death. Now, again, without giving too many spoilers to those who haven't seen it, how does it do so? And again, how does that connect with what we see in Scripture? There's both the in-show discussion of death and then kind of the meta fan discussion outside of that. And so prior to the season, as fans are talking about it, really the, the big question is who's going to die in this season? Because series has kind of developed this habit throughout each season that they introduce some new characters. They get you to love that character, follow that character, hope for their good, and then see that character die sometimes in, in horrific ways. And so those characters almost exist to die and provide emotional stakes for the story moving forward. And, and those deaths are often kind of the motivating factor for the heroes that, that remain alive to continue their fight against evil or to serve as kind of a reminder in later seasons, I failed that character, I failed that person, I failed my friend, I failed my loved one, and, and I'm carrying on that guilt. And so as they move to this season, it's, it's really been kind of ratcheted up with that, but both kind of characters 
dying or dealing with previous deaths that they've encountered. And, and so the the big bad of this season really kind of hammers home this idea of guilt and uh, shame for, you know, allowing these other people to die in previous seasons. And so we think about that. We think about the death in these fictional worlds. We see the characters recognizing how wrong that is. And we resonate with that. Like it, it's, it's wrong for these people to die. They shouldn't die in that way. And we, we can even cry and, and weep over characters we see die in, in movies and shows. But if, if we stop and think about that, you know, just from a kind of a, a naturalistic, materialistic perspective, like death is the most natural thing about our life. It's all we've ever experienced, whether that comes tragically at a young age or expectedly after a long life. You know, that, that's just what we've always seen. But we still treat death as unnatural. We treat it as a stranger in our world. Um, and that's because of the image of God in us. We recognize the wrongness of death. And even if we don't admit it out loud, we recognize we're made for eternity, that death is not natural. It's only here because of the fall. In, in Stranger Things, this whole thing of the, the upside down kind of creeping into our world, going beyond where it's supposed to be kind of into our world. And, and death is that way for us. It, it's an invasive species in, in God's good creation. You know, as Christians, Paul tells Thessalonians, you know, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. He doesn't say we don't mourn at all. You know, like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, we weep because death is wrong. But we hope and trust that like Jesus stepped out of his own tomb, will rise again. And so I think in Stranger Things, as we, as we see these characters wrestling with death, it helps us think about it as well and recognize that you know, even for the, the lost person, even for the person that doesn't know Christ, they still recognize Something's wrong when we die. Something's wrong that people we love die. And so I think that gives us an opportunity to speak the hope of Christ and say, you're right, it is wrong. And you're right, it shouldn't be that way. And there is hope. Death is an invasive species. I love that line. I think that's a really apt way to put it. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we find you and follow you? Most of my stuff is connected to the wardrobe door, which is uh, tied to my kind of love and fandom of C.S. Lewis. So you can follow me on Twitter at wardrobe door or my website is thewardrobedoor.com. Suffering is something that few of us want to think much about, but all of us will experience at some point in life. How do we navigate suffering well as a Christian? That's our topic today. We're delighted to have one of my favorite people in the world and a very dear friend, Jonathan Darville. He more affectionately goes by Jono, so you'll hear me call him Jono throughout our time. Jono is finishing an MA in philosophy of religion here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, while also serving as a ruling elder and youth director at Peace Church in Cary, North Carolina. He and his sweet wife, Jillian, have one son, Jono Jr. Jono, brother, thanks for being with us today. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me jump in. So you and I have talked a lot over the last 12 years or so about kind of your journey, your story, and, and it's a story that's still being written in many ways. But just talk, talk to us about what is your story of suffering? Yeah, and maybe I'll just, by way of intro, to set some context of when my health issues started. I grew up in a Christian home, but in high school started walking away from the faith, and then in college was running from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that I was transferring colleges every semester because I was so restless. At the end of that process, there was, while I was at UNC Wilmington, uh, my sister's wedding photographer, uh, who used to work in the fashion industry in New York, wanted to take some pictures. We took some pictures. We put them on the website. Next thing you know, I had four or five contract offers 
to move to New York City to work in the fashion industry. Let's just say I've never had contract offers for, for any kind of modeling, <laughs> photography, or anything else. That's why I'm, that's why I'm, I'm on podcasts and not video cast. But nonetheless, John, I'll continue on. <laughs> so for a guy that, if anybody remembers the show MTV, The Real World, I thought that was the good life. So mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. this was a great opportunity to drop out of college as a 20-year-old. And so I was able to convince my parents somehow that this was a good idea. I dropped out of school. I sold my car for capital. And as a 20-year-old uh, pagan, I moved to New York City to work in the fashion industry. Yeah. So it was pretty wow. wild. Um, unfortunately, I had an addiction to partying that was only exacerbated by moving to the city. There are club promoters that wait for models outside of castings for modeling jobs to recruit you into the nightlife scene. I was a very easy target. Wow. wow. And so unfortunately, I got caught up in the New York nightlife scene which is very dark, and it makes me think of the psalm that says, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. Hmm. And essentially, a a deep loneliness pervaded my life. I was 20 years old. I was restless. I didn't have an identity. I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. I didn't have much of a healthy relationship with my family. And um, yeah, I was running from God. And thankfully, uh, he intervened. I was at a casting for a modeling job one day, and a guy named Seth Whalen came over, introduced himself, and asked me if I wanted to get lunch. I was just lonely enough uh, that I said yes. We went to lunch. I had grown up enough in the church to realize halfway through lunch that he was evangelizing me. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't interested. But he did invite me to a Bible study for people in the fashion industry. Mm. I went, and I was shocked to discover when I showed up that there were a group of men and women that were a few years older than me that were all actors and models and musicians and photographers who happened to also love Jesus. Mm. And essentially what happened is that over a course of a few months, they shared the gospel in their lives with me really consistently and were so intentional uh, with me to pursue me. And uh, what I often say is that watching them live was like hearing life spoken in its original language for the first time. Mm -hmm. And there was something beautiful about it. There was something captivating about it, but I couldn't speak the language. You know, and I didn't know what the, the difference really was between me and them. Um, I had grown up in the church, but apparently it had never really taken root. And um, so uh, essentially one night after a long night out, I finally came to the end of myself and crawled out into my living room in Queens, New York, and cried out to God. And essentially I said, God, you know, as a younger man, I tried living a moral life and uh, ended up unhappy and things with my family didn't go well and there was a lot of brokenness in my life and now as a younger adult I've led a really rebellious life and I'm equally unhappy so clearly something deeper than my behavior has to be wrong here something's wrong with my heart and I can't change that so if you're there and you're real you can have me but you're going to have to change me Hmm. and the spirit of God showed up in my living room and you were 21 at this point 21 at this point yeah wow that's Spirit, incredible. Spirit of God invades and transforms the condition of my heart. I get up a, a different guy, forgiven by the blood. And, and is it fair to say, Jono, that it was the that kind of as you were talking about a minute ago, watching their lives was like hearing language in its original language for the first time. Um, is it fair to say that their lives at that moment in time was more powerful to you than whatever words they were saying or whatever gospel they were sharing or evan- the whole evangelism conversation? It was their lives that was most impactful? I think it changed my plausibility structure, so to speak. It gave mm. credibility to the message that they were sharing. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, okay, I've heard this before, but they were really challenging me to think deeper, but also their faith literally flavored and colored everything that they did, not just what they did on Sunday morning. It changed the way they did friendship. It changed the way that they did uh, 
work. It changed the way they did uh, relationships and dating. Like everything somehow was different. And yeah. so that to me was compelling and gave uh, credibility to the message. So let's fast forward then. I know also it's while you're in New York that you enter into this season of suffering that's going to last for a long time. Can you carry us through that part of the story? So thankfully, I became a believer right before all this health stuff started. Mm. So I had been sent to Greece. When you're a new model, you go to smaller markets to build up your book. I had booked a job with Men's Health. And so I went and lived in Athens for three months, which was pretty amazing. (laughs) But you're living in these models hotels with all these people that, of course, are living the most debauched life you can imagine. Mm. So I had just become a believer and just left that lifestyle. So I was like locking myself in my room at night to like read my Bible and journal <laughs> and like pray that I didn't fall into, you know, the, give, give way to the temptation. And uh, so it was while I was there, I was in Greece. Unfortunately, I got pneumonia uh, while I was uh, on the job and ended up in a private uh, hospital in Greece. And also while I was there, after I recovered, somehow hit my head on the side of a pool. I have no idea if these contributed to what has ended up happening to me. But not long after I got back from Greece, our apartment we lived in up near the George Washington Bridge was flooded. We were on the top floor of a 150-year-old building. There was a terrible storm. All of a sudden, like, the roof caved in. Hmm. And there's disgusting water flows in. And two weeks later, after all this happens, I've just gotten back from Greece, recovered from pneumonia. I've hit my head. This Now this, like, terrible, disgusting water. There's mold. All this craziness happens. I'm in the streets of New York. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like, I felt like I got poisoned. Like, it was this – I felt like I wasn't getting enough oxygen to my brain. And, like, I could barely focus. And it was just this intense brain fog. And I was, I was petrified. I thought some, somebody had literally done something to me. Hmm. So I go to the hospital. Like, they can't find anything. Um, all of a sudden, this triggers um, this cascade of more and more and more serious health events. But not only uh, did I get sick, but one of my roommates got really sick. Hmm. So two of us get really, really sick. He starts gaining weight. I start losing weight. All of a sudden, I'm super sensitive to certain uh, food. Like I can't drink caffeine, certain foods I can't eat anymore. I'm having all these intense, serious pains in my jaw and in my ribs. And like we start having these anxiety attacks. We can't figure out what the heck's going on. Mm. It gets so bad that um, my family and his family essentially came up and said, you guys, you guys got to leave. Like You can't stay here. We've got to figure out what's wrong with you. So in 2008, I moved home. Gave up my life in New York, moved in with my parents, and that began a you know, 13, 14-year journey of searching for answers. And as my dad says, we went to everybody but a witch doctor looking for help. Mm-hmm. Rheumatologists, neurologists, ended up in the hospital a bunch of times, and nobody can figure out what's wrong. And so I'm just suffering at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, without getting into great detail, I, I kind of pushed through, was able to finish my uh, undergraduate degree actually here at the college at Southeastern in biblical studies and apologetics, rolled over, started doing an MA, and just knew that if I was going to have any semblance of a life, that I was just going to have to put my head down and, and go. Um, but there were bouts of, uh, there were seasons of time where I was essentially bedbound. And over that time, I got diagnosed with uh, mold illness, chronic Lyme disease, and this virus um, that all ended up being misdiagnoses. And unfortunately, all the quote unquote treatments for the things that they were, uh, that they thought that I had made my situation significantly worse. 
So they were, I remember just walking through this with you, and it seemed like every two or three or four years, there was another kind of a revelation, it felt like, of a, that you've come to a new doctor, they say, what's well, this? It's, uh, it's the mold poisoning, it's the Lyme disease. It was at one time, I remember, uh, amalgam poisoning for maybe some dental oh, yeah. work you'd had done at one point. And, and every time, it seemed like this is going to be the answer, this is the answer. But as you said, this was 12, 13, 14 years, and two or three times, you were on your deathbed. I mean, just a, what three years ago, UNC sends you home effectively to die. So this gets really serious. You're, you're down to what 110 pounds, and just so you guys know, John is about six two, so 110 pounds on a six two frame is is pretty frail. Talk to us about where you were in those in those seasons of life. So in 2012, I took a job with a company called the Center for Leadership Studies. They do corporate leadership and management training. Um, so I had been working for and with them. I knew Jillian, my wife, and I were going to get married. Um, so in 2017, we moved back to North Carolina to be here so that I could go into the office every day. And I was on a business trip in Boston and um, was literally uh, noticing that I was losing the ability to walk. Hmm. Things had gotten so bad at this point, I started having all these serious, serious stomach issues, such severe pain. My, my diet came down to the point that I was literally only on liquids. I was in such severe pain, I couldn't eat anything. But I had been to the hospital, as you can imagine, a thousand times and nobody had ever helped me. So we just didn't think there was anything that could be done. Mm -hmm. So I was just trying to get through life. So I come home, I go into the office and everybody looks at me like they had seen a ghost. For six months I had been working from home because I was so sick. But I had dropped down to 108 pounds and unknowingly was dying of starvation. Mm -hmm. So apparently, you know, when your body starts eating the muscle once there's nothing left there and you, you literally start losing the ability to walk. That's what was happening. And so they rushed me to the hospital. So this was again in 2017. I step away from work. And unfortunately, the hospital fumbled the football. Instead of admitting me to the ER, they sent me home. And they were keeping me alive with this drink. And that began a three-year period of time where I was bedbound, we had to sell our home, leave my, jo- uh, leave my job, fulfill my wife's lifelong dream of moving in with her in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> and for three years, I was bedbound and in unimaginable pain, mm-hmm. like nine out of 10 pain every day. I'm only sleeping two or three hours. It is serious, serious. I mean, it felt like I was being tortured from the inside. I had and so to much To be pain. clear, you said this is three years. This is not three hours, three days, three weeks. This is three years. Three years. And it's because... First of all, you've already been through this for years at this point, what's going on, and the, the hospital sort of fumbles yet again and sends you into this three-year season. It was totally, I mean, honestly, it was just unnecessary. If they had gotten me into the, into the ER, this could have been over three years prior. Mm-hmm. And um, so unfortunately, uh, that's what happened. But then in 2020, right before COVID, um, things got really bad again. I dropped back down to 112 pounds. My dad goes into my doctor collapses in her office weeping, just begging her for help. She, in a panic, calls around trying to find somebody with admitting privileges to the hospital, and they find someone. So they're rushing me over to the hospital, but my bed's not ready. So we go over to a hotel that's within driving distance of UNC Hospital, and I'm in the bed, and when the, my sister was in town, my aunt was in town, my mom, they, when they went to get food, I just looked at my dad and said, Dad, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it to the hospital. Hmm. And... Uh, he says, I know, son, and he starts weeping. Hmm. So we cry together. We say goodbye to one another. He starts praying, and then he says, you know what? Let's just go. Like, we just got to go. So he gets me in the wheelchair. They put me in the car. I'm having trouble staying conscious at this point. They rush me over to the hospital. He runs in the front door weeping, 
this precious lady, God just providentially orchestrated this lady, just goes up and grabs him and hugs him that works there. Mm-hmm. She goes, this gets her director that gets a director. They pull some strings. I'm able to skip in line. They get me a bed immediately. So a guy named Khalil comes down and uh, to get me and to bring me up in the wheelchair. And he happens to be singing worship music. Wow. <laughs> so after 14 years, I'm just going to tell you, God intervenes at the 11th hour on my deathbed. Mm-hmm. I'm telling Jillian I want her to remarry. We're saying goodbye to one another. Like, we think it's done. And Khalil's singing, uh, if you've tried everything and everything's failed, try my Jesus. He's amazing. He's amazing. Wow. Jillian says that the loudest she heard me speak that day was when I whispered to Khalil, please keep singing. He gets me up to the room. The nurses come in. What's your pain level? Nine out of 10. Paige, the doctor. The doctor comes in. He looks at um, his chart. He looks at me. He has a little bit of a shocked look on his face. And he says, Mr. Darville, you're not going to believe this, but uh, the guy, Seth Whalen, that led me to the Lord in New York had in a panic called around begging he, uh, a fraternity brother who knew a doctor to get me some help because he knew he worked at UNC where, where, I, where we lived. And it happened to be this doctor. Wow. He said, Seth wow. told me your whole case history two days ago. And I just happened to be the doctor on call in this part of wow. the hospital tonight. Wow. I said, Doc, you just need to expect that anything you're going to try isn't going to go well. I've been having superficial seizures to any medication they give me. Like I'm, you know. And he looked at me and said, he said, Mr. Darvall, I need you to expect, look at me. I need you to expect that what we're going to do is going to go better than you think it is. Hmm. And um, so... To kind of expedite that story, I was in the hospital for 10 days right before COVID hits. And um, they finally give me an accurate diagnosis. So I have a rare pain disorder where called chronic functional abdominal pain syndrome. It's kind of like the connection between neurology and gastroenterology. Mm-hmm. And so what happened at some point in the past, we're not really sure what the origin is, is that the pain uh, signal got called, it's called centralized pain. The pain signal got stuck on on in my brain. And so it's just running like a, a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the pain control centers in your brain begin to atrophy. And as the pain control centers in your brain begin to atrophy, your experience of pain is significantly magnified. So I was in unimaginable pain and couldn't eat anything. But they kept looking at my stomach and nothing was wrong. But it's a research hospital. That team came in and they said, we're pretty confident this is what's going on. So, uh, but at this point, if you can imagine, I'm, I'm again dying of starvation. So what healed me? Three things. One, they got me on a feeding tube immediately um, because I was so malnourished. And they, they, they do it where you can bypass your stomach and go straight into your small intestine because I, I was in so much pain, right? So they get me on a feeding tube. And then there are actually medications that you can take that block this pain signal. And over the course of three or four years, I'm in like the year two and a half mark or whatever, um, your brain actually can heal itself over time. Mm. Mm. Um, so, and then I just want to mention that while I was in the hospital, not only was Khalil the doctor, but then the nurses that took care of me ended up being believers wow. and were like praying over me and just all these amazing things while I was there of God reminding us that he was present and that he was orchestrating this. Because when I was on my way to the OR to get the feeding tube put in, I just remember praying and begging God. I'm like, God, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just, please don't let me wake up from this procedure. Like, please, like, just take me home. And as they're about to wheel me on to the elevator, guess who the last person I saw was? Khalil, <laughs> singing that same worship song. And I, I just knew in that moment, like, the answer to this prayer is no. You know, like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you. And uh, so I got out, and they sent me home on this feeding tube. And I was so weak, though that I, you have to take like 100 milligrams of two of these drugs. 
And I could only take one milligram because I was so emaciated. And so it took months to get me up to a therapeutic dose. So even after I got home, it was withdrawal and unimaginable pain and just like it was a total nightmare. And so Sam Williams, uh, who works here, I, I had been meeting with him since 2008. We started meeting. And so I was just going to say that in addition to the medications, I don't think I would have made it apart from uh, counseling with Sam and trauma therapy as well. So, John, there are people listening uh, now and then who will listen in the future who their, their story of suffering is very different. It may have nothing to do with their health, but it may be because of loss in family or maybe financial struggle, it may be all kinds of things. And yet the experience of suffering is, is ubiquitous, you might say. Yeah. We're all experienced, and even as Christians, especially as Christians perhaps, I mean, our, our own savior we call the suffering mm. servant. Um, if you can go back, especially to kind of that three-year period of, that was so intense, and then meet people in their seasons of suffering, what would you say to them that you learned about Christ in that season? Yeah, and if it's okay, I'll just mention a few things that kind of help keep me going as well. Is that all right? Sure. Yeah. So I don't think I would have made it through that three-year period of time if it hadn't been for probably first and foremost the love of my family. My mom was my primary caretaker. She took care of me every day when my dad and wife went to work. Um, And then, you know, I mean, to be frank and honest, and I'm sure there are listeners that have had this experience, but whether it's depression being imposed on you or the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one or or pain or whatever it is, you know, suicide becomes a real existential threat and problem. You're, you're really wrestling through like, you know, do I still want to be here? Yeah. And so for me, the love of my wife, who when I asked her if she was thinking about leaving, said to me, it's my honor to be called to suffer with you. Mm. Like that's the type of woman. So I had a picture of mm. her that I sat in front of the chair that I sat in every day, and I just looked at that. It got so bad that I couldn't read or look at a TV because when you're that malnourished, like things happen with your eyes. And so I was just so, I mean, it was terrible. But the love of my wife, the love of my family, like that really helped keep me going. And then the other thing that really grounded us and really helped my wife get through this was the hope and the promise that God gives us that one day everything really is going to be made new and that we're going to be given bodies without expiration dates, Mm. bodies that are not subject to disease or decay or pain. And that hope beyond the horizon of death, that promise can really anchor you in the midst of suffering and keep you going. Mm. And then I was just going to say two more quick things that in that season really helped us, Um, me in particular. But when all this started happening, I was just really wrestling with why this was happening. And um, my wife said something to me that I've really held on to that really helped redirect the way that I endured what we were going through. And... um, we were in a parking lot in Chick-fil-A. She was eating dinner, and I was just watching, watching her eat. And uh, I was, you know, essentially complaining. And, you know, she looked at me, and she said, Honey, you know, I've been thinking about this. And um, if you could bring God more glory right now by being healthy, then guess what? I was like, What? She said, Then you'd be healthy. But you're not. Mm-hmm. So apparently you can bring God more glory right now by being sick. I tell you, that was like the most profound thing that I could have heard in that moment. And it really helped shape the way I thought about suffering. Hmm. Um, And then I was going to say one more thing. It was also during that time period that I was, before I got admitted to UNC, we had been at another hospital. And as many of you know, when you get to the hospital, um, 
you're waiting forever in the ER. And I started seeing people go back before me that got there after me. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Like, you know, I've got to be sicker than that guy, you know? (laughs) And why is he getting to go back? Why is she getting to go back? And I just felt the Lord whisper to me something along the lines of, I practice spiritual triage. Hmm. So you're, you're desperate for me to heal you. You're desperate for me to alleviate the suffering um, in the world. But essentially what you're asking me to do is to prioritize your temporal suffering over the potential eternal suffering of other people. And so I'm asking you to wait patiently in the waiting room, because if I were to do what you'd ask and enact the eternal state and come back and bring about the new heavens and new earth, there are people that are going to get saved a year from now that wouldn't make it. They'd go to hell. Mm. So I'm asking you to be patient. And I'm asking you to trust me. It's amazing. As you're talking about that, John, I'm thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? You're talking about patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. And I think I tend to think of the fruit of the Spirit just in the abstract, assuming that it's just in the ordinary humdrum, maybe the good times of life. But the fruit of the Spirit can be manifest uh, in the waiting room of mm. the emergency, the emergency part of the hospital as well. And this, and it's probably the last time that we want to, uh, the last place that we want to experience it or, or be reminded <laughs> of it. But even there, you said the Lord taught you something about patience yes. uh, as part of that. And I think that the key to that, to your initial question, is like, what did you learn about God? What did you learn about Christ? I learned that he is supremely trustworthy. Mm. Um, what I often say is that the cross is God's no to claims that he doesn't care about our suffering. Yeah, that's right. And the resurrection is God's no to claims that he's powerless to do anything about it. Yeah. So I might not know, as Tim Keller points out, I might not know what the reason is. <laughs> on all the reasons why he let me go through what I went through. But I do know what the answer isn't. Hmm. It can't be that he doesn't love me because he was entered to, willing to enter into the brokenness of the world and endure infinite suffering to rescue us from infinite suffering. Yeah. So. Yeah. You've said this before, John, you gave a talk uh, at Southeastern. And in fact, we'll, we'll link to that talk in the show notes of this episode. But you gave a talk at what we called the Wisdom Forum a few years ago. This was, this was even uh, kind of early into that three-year season. You were pretty sick when you gave this talk. You were pretty skinny and frail, and the worst was ahead of you, and you didn't mm-hmm. even know it. But even in that talk, you made this comment where you said, suffering is a fundamental rhythm of the good life. Suffering is a fundamental rhythm of the good life. What do you mean by that? So when I say that, I mean suffering is a fundamental rhythm of the good life because if you live for Christ, you will inevitably suffer. He says that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's our great joy and honor to share in the sufferings of Christ. Mm. And Peter says, don't, don't act like, you know, don't be surprised if something strange is happening to you. We told yeah. you this is going to happen, and apparently this is a necessary part of the advancement of the kingdom of God. So the way I typically put this is that we suffer to share the one who suffered to save. Now, that doesn't mean that every, necessarily that every individual is going to be persecuted. But as the church, on the whole, if you're living faithfully, if you're living the Christian life, you should expect suffering. So suffering has a missional character to it. I, I think it was Justin Martyr who, um, before he became a believer, was in the Colosseum in Rome watching Christians be killed and martyred. And the way that they went to their death without fear, and the way that they went to their death with dignity and 
it was so impressed him and so mm. surprised him that mm. he had to ask the question, what is it? What is yeah. it that they have that makes them unafraid to die? What is it that's more precious than life to them? Mm. And it's Christ, mm. right? And so like when you suffer well and you realize that, you know, as that song says, that uh, he's the only one that death bows to, mm. right? Yeah. You've got something. Now the world wants to know what it is, and then they're going to discover that they know that it's Jesus. So just to be clear, John, you're saying don't run away from suffering, which I don't hear you saying run to it either. We're not trying to bring it on ourselves or pray it down on our heads. But (laughs) at the same time, is it fair to say that there are things— there are things that we learn about our Savior that we only learn through suffering. And perhaps in those times we, for lack of a better term, we snuggle up to the scars in the, in the hands inside of our own Savior. Yes, that's really well put. Last question, Jono. So our theme for this year uh, at the CFC, the Center for Faith and Culture, is considering spiritual formation or just Christian formation. As you think about the relationship between suffering and formation, what are, what are a couple of thoughts that come to mind for you? So I actually called and asked my dad, you know, just what they learned, because, I mean, as you know, it's not just you. When you're suffering, it's not just you. Your family suffers with you. Like I think about my wife and my parents and all that they endured. And what my dad said was that essentially that the suffering really truly drove him to his knees and taught him the value and the importance of prayer. And it was the first time, he said, in a long time that he was so consistent in his prayer life. And he really learned what it meant to depend on and rely on the Lord and have to get to that point where you're saying, not my will, but your will be done, where you're surrendered to him. Um, Scripture says that God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And prayer is one of the ways that we, as Joe Rigney says, attend to God's presence in our midst. And you go there for comfort. And so I think that suffering in terms of sanctification and spiritual formation deepens and enriches um, our intimacy with Christ and really drives us to the means of grace because we desperately, desperately need him. I also think about Hebrews 5.8 that, you know, it says that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. So it's Mm. like you don't really know, you don't really know what obedience is until you've had to be obedient in the face of intense suffering. Mm where it's yeah. going to cost you something. Yeah. And we have to remember that Jesus said, take up your cross yeah. and follow me. So I think that maybe one of the takeaways here would be to re- be reminded that spiritual formation and sanctification are cross-shaped. You know, we talk about we want the image of Christ formed into us, but are we really prepared for that to be formed into us through an instrument of suffering like mm-hmm. sickness or a cross in Christ's sake or even some of our own or the loss of a loved one or whatever whatever suffering might look like in your own life that can can we really look for it then can we anticipate it then yeah and i just i mean if i could just say one more thing on terms of a note of hope for the people that are suffering right now one of the things that i learned and and would want to share with you is to remember that if you're suffering it doesn't mean uh, that god has abandoned you and it certainly doesn't mean um, that it's because of something, some sin that you've committed and you just need to have enough faith. So think about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Hmm. The Pharisees would have known and thought that Lazarus's name was very ironic hmm. because the name Lazarus means God has helped. Hmm. And it looked like God had done anything but help this yeah. man. Yeah. Sick and poor and broken, no help, seemed helpless. But when he died, he's the one that was accepted into Abraham's bosom and the rich man was in hell. Hmm. 
Mm. Right. So just because you're suffering and things are broken. And even if I mean, you look at that's one other thing I noticed in the scriptures. It's like, okay, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Stephen wasn't so lucky. Neither was John the Baptist. Yeah. Right. So we have to trust that whatever's happening to us is for God's ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Yeah, brother. This is fantastic, and you always do such a good job uh, sharing this story. You know, I've talked about it multiple times, and it uh, it makes me cry every time. So thanks for sharing that. And yeah. you also, Jono writes for us often at our blog, so you can see his work there. Um, and then he's also serving at his church, preaching regularly. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today we have Dr. Julia Higgins, Assistant Professor of Ministry to Women at Southeastern Seminary. So, Dr. Higgins, what's on your bookshelf? Okay, so there are a lot of books on my bookshelf, uh, but one route I wanted to go is just talking about biographies. I know that maybe um, oftentimes Christians read Christian biographies. Uh, Like one in particular I read was on Keith Green that I found amazing and encouraging. But right now this summer I have been reading two different biographies, one on Winston Churchill. uh, And the the one that I wanted to talk about today is George W. Bush's uh, autobiography about his time in the presidency. And so I think it's just uh, really helpful uh, to look at and and to see how he's divided that book. He has divided it according to decision points. So that's the name of the book, Decision Points. And so each chapter is a a specific decision that he was faced with in the presidency. And he takes that that, um, maybe thing that he's you know, presented with and walks you through the eight years of his presidency and how he worked that out. And so I've just been so encouraged to read in particular, like uh, the chapter on Afghanistan and all of the, the decisions that went into that. It's given me clarity even on um, things in our world today in dealing with Afghanistan. So I encourage Christians to go beyond Christian biographies and look at leaders in the world past and present uh, to see how they have faced difficulties in leadership and that will help you draw leadership principles and so that's one of the books on my bookshelf that I'm currently enjoying George Bush's decision points thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture if you enjoyed the episode please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening we look forward to seeing you next time